0: i going to start with prayer this morning, but I want to share with you briefly a specific prayer need that we need to bring up and uh, that we should be uh, bringing before the Lord regarding Misty Bryson. Some of you all may know that she is in the hospital right now here in Greenville, and she's had uh, just kind of had some infections and things like that that haven't cleared up, and they are actually going to do a bone marrow um, biopsy tomorrow, and uh apparently a very painful procedure, and obviously um, somewhat scary. I mean, just the whole thing. Don't really know what's going on there. We want to lift up Misty. She's in room 514, and I encourage you to, uh, you know, if you can find time to visit her or call her that, to do so, And um, but let me encourage you also that if you've been sick or if you've been around somebody who's sick, then don't visit her. She's got really low... Um, white blood cell count, and you have to wear a mask when you go in there. So while we want to let her know that we are walking with her in this, we don't want to bring sickness in there. So um, let's pray for Misty. I want to pray for Tom Shirey and the Shirey family also. And then we're going to pray for a local church, and then we'll just just get neck deep in this message. Lord, this morning we want to thank you that you are seated on your throne. We are so thankful that you are sovereign over all things, that Satan doesn't scratch his nose but for permission from you. Or we are thankful that even in suffering that you can be glorified. Lord, we pray for a sister who is hurting right now and who is afraid and who's confused, and pray for her husband and her family, Jim, and the kids. Lord, we just pray for a peace that passes understanding and trusting and knowing a sovereign God that is good and that's attentive. And uh, we just put Misty before you. We pray first and foremost for healing from you, that you'll get all the glory. And if you should use uh, the instrument of modern medicine, we are grateful for that. But we put our hope and faith and trust in you alone. Lord, we're thankful for good medical care and we pray for wisdom on the part of the physicians that are, are treating her. Pray, too, for the pain that she is anticipating and that she will endure in this procedure. And um, we pray that somehow this will refine her and put you on display. We don't know how right now, but we just pray that you'll be glorified in and through this. Pray also for the Shiree family and for Tom for his. Uh, response to treatment, Lord. We just pray that he is um, healing and responding. Pray that his body is um, taking the treatment. Lord, even more than that, we pray that his body is worshiping and his heart is turned in your direction. And the heart of his family is trusting you now more than ever. We pray that you are being glorified through how that family is responding to this trial. Lord, also, we want to pray this morning for uh, Southwood Christian Church right down the road from us and uh, Pastor Dave Smith. Lord, I want to pray for Dave. I just want to lift him up. He's a single man. Just pray for him, for his time in your word, and his time in worship and wonder. Lord, I pray that he is overwhelmed with a, just a gospel that's so amazing that it's scandalous. I pray that he has a keen awareness of just how low grace reaps and that he ministers out of that amazement and wonder. Lord, that his ministry toward this flock that you have uh, gathered right down the road, that his ministry will be effectual and will point toward you. And it will be a people that gather that enjoy you, that are walking in faith and they are salty and bright and aromatic as a result. Lord, we also pray that We will never have a spirit of competition between us or Southwood or us and any other church in this community, but that you can mend fences and break down walls and soften divisive, competitive hearts and that we can cheer for each other and want the best for each other. For your glory. That's not anything that any of us can do or muster. It's only you that can change the heart of each of us, and we beg for that, Lord. I pray that for your, for your own glory. We pray in these next few minutes also, Lord, that uh, you will speak to your people through a uh, humble, broken, gentle vessel. And that we'll see that uh, your nature is so amazing and so wonderful and that what you have given us, what you have called us to, is a reflection of who you are. We pray that we can be that people, that you will work that in us for your own glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to John chapter 14. Actually, turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be in John 14, but I want you to turn to John chapter 1 first. <clears throat> we have kind of a unique Sunday where we have a lot of visitors here this morning for, for our uh, baby and child dedication. And... Uh, for the sake of those who have not been here the last couple of weeks, what I'm going to try and do is try and capture kind of the essence of the last couple of weeks to where we can climb in to where we're going this morning and where all of us, even those who haven't maybe been with us the last couple of weeks, can dine with us. I, I do need to let you know that I, oftentimes our sermons are kind of part A, part B, part D, part F. They, it's a conversation. And sometimes you step into the middle of a conversation and you need to get both sides of it on either side of it, and you need to eat that. So I encourage you to make the effort to engage us online if you have been out or grab a hard copy of our CDs. This morning, I want to begin in John chapter 1, verse 18. This kind of sets the stage for where we've been these last few weeks. John chapter chapter 1, verse 18. The first part of this verse presents a problem. What we're going to do is really we're going to climb into the mind of a dude that lived 2,000 years ago, a dude named John, a dude that walked with Jesus, a dude that saw his miracles, a dude that saw him die, a dude that ate dinner with him the night before and heard the very words that we're going to gauge here in John chapter 14 in the hours before he went to the cross, and then a dude that with the others found a tomb especially vacant, and then ate fish on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with the risen Lord, and then saw him ascend into the clouds. So this is a first hand eyewitness to this whole story. And this guy we're going to engage, he presents this problem in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God. We considered that problem. Couple weeks ago and considered that what this means, it's not necessarily dealing in John with God's being invisible. We know from other passages that God is invisible. This in John, when he's speaking of no one has ever seen John, what he's saying is that God is unviewable. God the Father, specifically, is unviewable. We cannot see him and live. That is. Moses asked him if he could do that. God, just show me your glory. Said Moses, I'm sorry, I can't let you do that because (laughs) I got work for you to do. (laughs) Because you would be consumed by my white hot glory. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to stick you in this little crack in this rock and I'm going to pass by and I'm going to let you see the ebbing flow of my glory as I depart. It was so amazing that it left Moses' face aglow because you can't see me and live. So it's a problem that no one has ever seen God because in the book of John, seeing is knowing. And then it progresses from knowing is believing. And then in John, believing is to have eternal life. He told Nicodemus in chapter 3, he said, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Seeing is the first step. You've got to see this thing. And then, over there, as the book develops, you see that seeing is knowing, and knowing is believing, and believing is eternal life. In John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. This is a book about seeing and knowing and believing and eternal life. But he presents a problem in chapter 1, verse 18 no one has ever seen God. Then turn to John chapter 14 i got some good news for you. John has some good news for us here in John chapter 14. I'm going to begin in verse 1, but we're going to focus in verses 7 through 11. And John is going to give a solution or an answer to this problem that he's presented in chapter 1 verse 18, that no one has ever seen God. I'm starting in verse 1 just for the sake of context. Again, this is hours before Jesus goes to the cross. He's, He's speaking with the 11. Judas has left the table. They're troubled because Judas has left the table. They're troubled because they're getting the sense that Jesus is going somewhere where he says, you can't follow me. They've been following him for three years. So he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, um, Jesus, um, question. Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we even know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. You hear knowing? And you have seen him. You see, seeing. And then Philip, ordinary Phil, (laughs) he's a lot like us, like like the rest of us. He says, "Uh, Lord, uh, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Phil, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, Phil, that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. He starts the book out with this problem, no one has ever seen God. But here in this passage, we see this beauty of revelation. We see the beauty and the connection if this problem is right up front that you can't see, so you can't know. If you can't know, you can't believe. If you can't believe, you can't have eternal life. Then John chapter 14, these verses have some good news, some really good news that the previously unseeable is now seeable. The previously unscopable is now scopable. The previously unknowable is now knowable. Because if you had known me, You would have known the Father. If you see me, then you see the Father. The reason this is possible is because what Jesus says here in this passage. He says some things that we engaged this last week for the first time, many of us. This thing that I read for years previous to getting to John 14. In anticipation going, okay, what does this mean? The Father's in the Son and the Son is the Father. That's what he says. Jesus is in the Father. He says it in verse 10. And he also says the Father is in Jesus. And then also at the end of verse 10, he says the Father dwells in Jesus. His works and his words are Father's after all. And then in verse 11, he says, just in case you didn't get it, he says, believe me. I think that the the heart behind the believe me pleading is the same heart that I had last week that made me just want to come unglued. Believe me. Don't be indifferent to this reality. Believe me, Jesus is in the Father. Verse 11, believe me, the Father is in Jesus. Last week, we met a new word. It's the word perichoresis. It's a word that was developed by men like Hilary of Portiers in 300-something A.D. Developed by a guy named John of Damascus, Athanasius of the West in 700-something A.D. Derived from a Greek word that means to contain or to penetrate, perichoresis. Choresis. It's a word that they use to describe this relationship between father and son, son and father, and both in relative to the Holy Spirit. Perichoresis, if you just disassemble it, it means peri, which is around, and choresis is where we get the word dance. So, he's describing this dance of God, this movement. I bet some of you have seen this before. Maybe I can make it a little bit more contemporary, a bunch of cheerleaders or something, or... A bunch of people that are so in sync with each other. Maybe the, the, the more seasoned among us can imagine some folk dancers who just read each other's minds, who are so connected and so one and so a part of each other while they're releasing and embracing and spinning and turning that they move as a union on the dance floor. And if you tried to pick out one of them, you couldn't do it because it's just this beautiful blur of movement and it's beautiful to watch. These early church fathers—that's what they called the movement of Father, Son, and Spirit, where they're so interinvolved, so intertwined, so interpenetrating that it's it's as if they move as a union on the dance floor. John of Damascus said, "There is one and the same motion of three subsistences, but no coalescence or commingling. While they move as a union on the dance floor, they're still distinct." God is one, yet he is still three. If you focus too much on one and not the other, you end up with heresy. If you focus on the distinctiveness of the three, you can end up being tritheistic, and we're not tritheistic. If you focus on the oneness more than the three, then you end up being a modalist that says that God the Father became Jesus. And now he's the Holy Spirit just out floating around somewhere. You take them both in tension, union, distinct. And this dance does a beautiful job of handling that thought. where father is in son and son is in father. And they interdwell and inter-involve, intermingle, interpenetrate each other. I used an illustration last week that's one worth engaging again this week, but I wanted to say it just like I said it last week, this is a very fragile illustration. I don't want you to ever view God the Father and God the Son like they're going off to the fishing hole with their arms around each other, with one of them holding the fishing pole and the other one holding the brim or the, the, you know, fishing tackle. Don't ever view God that way, but Just consider this little simple illustration of relationship between a father and a son where you have seen a father that looks like his son or a son that looks like his father. And there's a genetic relationship there. You see father in son. And even better than that, you know, the debate about nature versus nurture. I see those of you who have adopted where your kids look like you. (laughs) that Proving that nurture is even more so important. Where you look at these kids and they think the way daddy thinks, they say the words daddy says, they laugh at the sort of things that daddy laughs in because daddy has indwelt the son. He spent time with the son. They're more familiar the more time they spend together. And you know the kids whose parents spend a lot of time with them because you see the parents in the kids. They reveal the parents because the parents have dwelled in them. It's a very dangerous illustration because I don't want to ever view, want you to view God the Father and God the Son like two pals going off to the fishing hole, but they can at least give us some sense about what's going on here. When Father dwells in Son and Son dwells in Father, they're part of this amazing dance that I admit is very difficult to understand. One of the things I enjoyed that Hilary of Portier said, he says, what man cannot understand, God can be. Isn't that good news? What man cannot understand, God can be. So just because you cannot understand the triune God does not mean that it, not, it isn't. It can so be, <laughs> thankfully. Now, this is profound on two levels. This is so profound on two levels. On the first level, this is the crux of the gospel. That if the Father is not revealed in the Son, and if Son is not in the Father, and if they don't interdwell, and if there's not a perichoretic relationship between the two, then John chapter 1, verse 18, part A, where it says no one has ever seen God, just put a period after it. And just imagine the book of John just being a bunch of blank pages after that point. Because there is no gospel. There is no good news. In fact, the whole New Testament is a bunch of blank pages. It's not a gospel of good news. It's actually a bad news tract. That we're still stuck with the same sort of relationship that we had with God before. Where he might show up at the tabernacle. But if he does, Moses can't even go in there. Moses, who is supposedly, according to our Bibles, the most humble man that ever lived. Can't even go in there to visit with God. Because he's that unviewable. And the priests, if they just happen to be in the tabernacle doing their thing, you know, slicing throats and sacrificing stuff, and the Shekinah glory of God shows up, man, they're evacuating, bailing out because he's unviewable. The crux of the gospel sits on this reality that the Father is revealed in the Son, because if he's not, we have no good news. We have no gospel. We have a bad news track. Really, we have a Dear John letter instead of the book of John. The gospel of John. It would be a terrible reminder that the best we could hope for is that God might show up. But that he could not be really seen. And he could not be really known. And he could not be really believed in and engaged. And that we would not have eternal life. And that will make us swallow hard. But our Jesus, our Jesus, our Lord and Savior makes the unviewable, viewable Because the Father dwells in the Son. He's now seeable. He's now knowable. He's now believable. And now he's lifeable in his name. That by believing in him, we may have life in his name. That's the first important thing about this reality. Here's the second is that it tells us how to live. This is what I so wanted to share last week. I so wanted to give you this part B, but I needed you to drive, Brad Cardwell said, it's kind of like driving around the parking lot looking for a place to park. I wanted you to have this itch that's developing over the course of this week. What does perichoresis have to do with any of us? Is it just this heady notion, this academic idea that people talk about at seminary that maybe we kind of talk about because Ben kind of was excited about it, but what does it have to do with us? I'm glad. I hope you drove around the parking lot all week because I'm going to give you a place to park it right now. Turn to John chapter 17. This reality of our God tells us how to live. John chapter 17, you know, I was thinking this week, I was thinking, I'm not sure if I'm preaching John chapter 14 verses 7 through 11 or John chapter 17 verses 20 and 21. If someone were to ask me if I'm preaching one or the other, I think I'd probably just say yes. Because we're going to eat this one too. And it's beautiful because it ties it all together. Starting in John chapter 17, verse 20, let me tell you what's happened in this chapter up to now. Jesus has been praying for those who followed him, he's been praying for his disciples, for the 11. Hours before he goes to the cross, he's praying for them specifically. And here in verse 20, he's praying for some different people, he's praying for those who would believe, he's praying for us. This is the craziness. When I send an email to somebody say, hey, man, I was praying for you today. Or, hey, I'm praying for you about this. You know how great. I appreciate that. God, that's awesome. Imagine God the Son praying for you to God the Father. Now, that's some premium prayer right there. That's what this is. this I mean, we should just like fall in love with this passage right off the bat before you've even heard it. That God the Son is praying this for you to God the Father. Let's see what he says. He says, I don't ask for these only, speaking of his immediate 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Right? That's confession of faith. That's hopefully those of you who are in fellowship with Christ because you've confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord. He's praying for us. And what he's praying is that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's paracresis that they may all be one. See, he describes perichoresis as oneness. He's praying that they may be like we are, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a beautiful literary tool here. It's called a chiasm. I really wrestle with whether I should even share this with y'all. But I have to tell you, whenever people would show me a chiasm in seminary or in some really detailed Bible study, I was like, dude, that's sweet. How come nobody's ever showed me that before? So I'm going to show you, but I'm going to explain it too, in regular terms. But for those of you who might enjoy this, a chiasm is a tool that people use in literary. It's a literary device to accentuate a truth. And there's a chiasm right here. For those of you who kind of want to know what a chiasm looks like, it looks like a pyramid that's laying on its side. So if you're going to make an outline in your notes there, put a pyramid on its side right up here at the top of the pyramid, put A, halfway down, put B, on the next line, put C, and then coming back down, put B prime, or B, little apostrophe, and then A prime down at the bottom. A, B, C, B prime, A prime. And I'm going to tell you what goes in those spots. And I'm going to tell you what it does. I'm going to tell you why I'm sharing this with you. In the A spot, in verse 20 of chapter 17, he's praying for those who will believe. He's praying for those that are outside the text. Because those who are in the text are the disciples in Jesus, right? If you're climbing into the story, it's those who saw him bleed. It's those who ate with him. He's praying for those outside the text. So that goes in A, those outside the text. And then right down in B, right next to it, he's praying That they may all be one. That those outside the text are brought in and made one. Okay, cool. He's praying for us. He's praying that we will be made one. And it saves C, because I'm going to come back to C. But B prime is a reflection of B that I just gave you. That they may also be in us, in verse 21. That those on the outside may be in us. It's a different way of saying that they may be made one. And then in A prime, so that those outside the text may believe the Father sent the Son, so that the world may believe. And then in the C spot, the thing that this literary tool is pointing to, like a big fat arrow, if you made the outline, the thing that's so sweet that we could just enjoy is the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. That's at the center of this literary tool. It's like the magnet that makes for perichoresis in us. Perichoresis in the Father and Son and Spirit. As the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, is the thing that is at the pinnacle, at the peak of this reality. It's the thing that should get us really excited because it's what makes us, it's what makes the church. Now let me give it to you in just regular terms. Jesus is asking the Father for something. He's asking the Father. He's saying, hey, uh, Father, that thing that we have, that thing that we are where you're in me and I'm in you, um, I want to pray that for the believers in the future. I want to pray that they'll be in us and that they'll be in each other. That thing that most people won't even bother to engage but Unique men like Hilary of Poitiers and John of Damascus, Athanasius of the West, will engage and go, you know, that matters. We'll go, dude, that matters. And then we'll engage a passage like this and say, this is what he's asking for in us. That we'll be one with God and one with each other. He's praying that they'll dwell in us and that we'll dwell in them and that we'll dwell in each other. He's praying this for the McGraws. He's praying this for, insert your name in there, the Avants. He's praying this for the Beans. He's praying this for the Finleys. He's praying this for the Ruths. He's praying this for the Walfords, Bankstons, and Cooks. He's praying that we would be one with God and one with each other. He's praying that we will be perichoretic as God is perichoretic, that we will be dwelling in and be dwelled in as they dwell in each other. He's praying that we would be a reflection of what they are. The Lindsay's, the Stevens, the Living Goods, the McCulloughs, the Rodden's, the Wade's. If I left your name out, it's not on purpose. Just insert your name in there. Jesus, God the Son, is praying for his people that we would be a reflection of what he is. Dude, that's a sweet, sweet prayer that as the Father and Son are interpenetrating, interinvolved, and they're in a beautiful dance, that we would be caught up in that beautiful dance with them. And that we would be in a beautiful dance with each other. Man, that's music right there. That's music. That's why this has teeth and shoes and hands. That's why this is real. It's not some academic notion. This fuels what we are as a church. There are two really important implications. Two. I held up one. There's two really important implications. Here's the first. Here's the first important implication of this. Is it the unity that we have as believers or unity that we hope to have as believers? We've got to know is a reflection and a manifestation and a vestige. Vestige means a trace or an element of the union that the Father has with the Son. The interdwelling that the Father has in the Son and the Son has in the Father. He says right there in verse 21, he says that we would be just as they are that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's not sort of like. Just as is just as. That we would come into a union that's otherworldly. It's so much more than a good idea. I realize for six years we've been really pushing this thing, this encouragement to know and be known, this encouragement to be involved in each other's lives, this encouragement to give God time. To where he can dwell in you and you in them. And I'm realizing this has fuel. This has, an Ill, this has a, that, that is a remnant or a vestige of this ultimate reality of father and son and son and father. It's not just a good idea. It's not a church growth scheme. Is that an encouragement to you? It's not some novel idea we have to go read some book about the book. We can read the book and find out this is who we are to be. It is a prayer that God the Son prayed to God the Father for you. We have a term for it at Crosspoint. And you know what? I know what the world has done to this word. At Crosspoint, this means something. It means it's called membership. We're trying to give a parking space for this thought that we are to be involved in each other's lives. That we are to have meaningful relationship in each other's lives. That we are to be perichoretically a reflection of our perichoretic God. And we call it membership. It means something. So my question is, as I'm engaging this thought, is how could we possibly profess Christ and Father and Spirit and not dwell in and be dwelled in by each other? Is that even feasible? I want to tell you it is feasible. And in fact, it's really easy. Because this doesn't come naturally to us. This thought of dwelling in another and having someone dwell in you doesn't come naturally. What comes natural for us is that we don't dwell in others and don't let anybody dwell in us. We're self-guarded and we're self-protective. We isolate ourselves. You really see it when someone's struggling with something or when someone's really hurt. They isolate and they withdraw. That's what comes natural for us. Or when someone's hurt us, we're going to put up our guard and we're not going to let them in. That's what comes natural for us. There's a term for it that's related to it. It's a term that I studied this week. It's called the Cartesian ego. This comes from a dude named Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes came up with a statement, I think, therefore I am. Sound familiar? That, believe it or not, has shaped the way we think, especially as Westerners. I think, therefore I am, has become, if I can think it, then it is. And if I can't think it, then it isn't. So I think, therefore I am, has become, If I think it, then it is. And if I can't think it, then it isn't. And it's become, it's morphed into this thought that there's just me. I'm the thinker. So things are, dependent on me, thinking. So there's just me. I'm just an individual. And yes, I engage some other people, but ultimately it's just me. That's what comes natural to us. I going to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. A lot of times you hear a husband or wife talking. I bet some of you heard this maybe from your own wife, men. Or ladies, you've heard this as you talk between each other. You know, my husband, he's so frustrating right now. He, he just won't let me in because there's just me. That's ultimately what he's saying. That's what he's doing. He's doing violence to this prayer that Jesus prayed. When a husband's just, there's just me. I'm not going to let her in. I don't have room for her. Because there's just me, and because her requests take uh, do violence to my me time. So I can't let her in. But what, he, what she's saying basically is, my husband won't let me, he won't give me a place to dwell. And he won't dwell within me. He won't be interinvolved in my life, and he won't be, let me be inter-involved in his life. Because naturally, this sort of thing we're talking about doesn't come naturally. We isolate naturally. We don't go looking for a home for ourselves in others naturally. We think of reasons that a person just won't do for a dwelling place for you. We think of reasons why a church just won't do for a dwelling place for you. We think of good reasons that person just won't do. So we isolate like Josie Wales. That's who it was for me when I was growing up. Josie Wales. Another one in 1983. There was a movie called Lone Wolf McQuaid. Had Chuck Norris in it. He had the baddest pickup truck, four by four pickup truck in history. That's who developed my identity of manliness. Lone Wolf McQuaid, Josie Wales. We have current day versions. Jason Bourne, right? Doesn't need anybody, he's not gonna let anybody in. Batman. How about Batman? Just goes to his cave in isolation. A recent movie, Into the Wild, where basically a guy leaves everything and goes off by himself in isolation. Those are what makes the movies. It's those stories that develop our view of the hero. But we've got to let this Bible develop our view of the hero. Men, husbands who will not let your wives in, you're not Lone Wolf McQuaid. We're supposed to be reflecting the character of our God, where Father dwells in Son, and Son dwells in Father. What this ultimately develops into for a people or for a family, for an individual, is other people become interruptions because there's just me. Other people become interruptions, and they take away from my me time. But that's not to be characteristic of the people of God, because it's not characteristic of our God. God's people will recognize this natural tendency in every single one of us to isolate and to withdraw and to go off into our cave or go off into our four wheel drive pickup truck by ourselves. We recognize this natural tendency in the natural man to close off and isolate, but we see the interinvolvement of God, the perichoresis of our God, Father dwelling in Son, Son dwelling in Father, and we hear and see this prayer from the Son on our behalf, praying that we would dwell in Him and Him in us, and that we would dwell in each other. And we go, no, we're going to walk in affirmation to this prayer. We're going to walk in obedience to this prayer, and I'm going to give somebody a place to dwell. And I'm going to reckon, you know, that I may not be a perfect dwelling place either. And I'm going to find some place to dwell, a people to walk in. We're going to be a people who are making our home in Christ and giving Christ a place to dwell and making our home in each other's, in, in, in others, and letting others make a home in us. That's who the people of God are supposed to be. This is characteristic of our whole New Testament. You may not realize this. All over our New Testament, all through the epistles. Those are the letters written to the churches. Here are just some snapshots all through the epistles, starting in Romans 12.10. Don't turn there. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 12.16. Live in harmony with one another. 15.7. Welcome one another. Romans 15.14. Instruct one another. Romans 16, 16, greet one another. And I'm not going to give you references anymore. I'm just going to give you this shotgun, this machine gun. In fact, do not deprive one another when you eat and wait for one another. Have the same care for one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Bear with one another in love. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Exhort one another every day while it is today. All those one another's, others, all those are is they're connecting with this view of a perichoretic people who are involved in each other's lives. And here's the reality. If you've got no one another's, others, you're not walking in obedience to this prayer that was prayed for you. If you've got no one another's, others, then you're not reflecting the character of our God. You're doing violence to this prayer that Jesus prayed for you moments before he was dragged from trial to trial to cross. Perichoresis, both vertical union with God and horizontal union with each other is how, it's only the way, it's the only way we can weep with those who weep. It's the only way we can rejoice with those who rejoice. It's the only way that someone who is going through suffering right now, like Misty Bryson, can find the people who are suffering with her. As we are perichoretically involved in her life, in her, in ours. The rejoicing of one person becomes the rejoicing of all because all indwell that rejoicing person. Do you see that? Is that just music? The Cartesian ego rages. God's people, however, welcome interruptions. God's people make ourselves available. To God and to each other. Share a quote from you, with you with a guy from Gabriel Marcel, who's a French philosopher in the 1800s, or 1800s and 1900s. He wrote a book called The Mystery of Being in 1951. He identifies being relative to each other. Listen to what he says on availability. He says, availability is an aptitude to give ourselves to anything that offers, anything that comes our way, and to bind oneself by the gift. It means to transform mere circumstances into opportunities, thus participating in the shaping of our destiny and marking it with our seal. I read a passage last week about Jesus doing this very thing, where Jesus was heading off to Jairus' house. Jairus' daughter was sick. Jairus says, Hey, man, she's about to die. So, whatever Jesus was doing right then, he made himself available to Jairus. So they head off to Jairus' house. And on the way there, he's going through this crowd and he says, Oh, stop. Somebody touched me. His disciples are like, Jesus, man, there's a crowd. They're all around you. Everybody's talking. He said, No, no. Somebody touched me and power went out from me. And he turned around and spoke to this woman who had dealt with an issue of blood for years. He's hustling to Jairus' house. First of all, he's hustling somewhere before Jairus calls for him, but he makes himself available to dwell in and be dwelled in by. He heads off to Jairus' house. And on his way, he makes himself available to a woman that we don't even know her name, who had an issue of blood. And he gives her a place to dwell, as he calls her daughter. And he dwells in her. He puts this on display, availability. Availability of a perichoretic people. Peter Lightheart speaks on Gabriel Marcel's comments and here's what he says. He says mere circumstances are turned into opportunities when someone interrupts us and instead of seeing it as an obstacle to the accomplishment of our goals and plans, we see it as something that can shape us. We see it as something that can on which we place our seal and we can minister redemptively as Jesus did with the woman with the issue of blood, the interruption becomes an opportunity to dwell in and be dwelled in by another. Man, that's beautiful. The reality is most people aren't this way. You won't come by this naturally. Most families aren't this way. And unfortunately, most churches aren't this way. But we are supposed to be. We must be. There is no room for a free agent. There is no room for a floater. There is no room for a renegade in the people of God. The Cartesian ego just doesn't fit here. It's inappropriate among the people of God where there's just me. There's no such thing in the people of God because it doesn't reflect our God. And it doesn't walk in this prayer of John chapter 17. It doesn't walk in obedience to it basically someone says I'm gonna go freestyle I'm gonna do it my own way because there's just me I have two questions for you before I share with you implication number two implication number two is brief but two questions for you just in regards to the first implication that the unity of the people of God reflect the unity of our God That the inter-involvement, perichoretic relationship of the people of God reflect our perichoretic God. Two questions. First question is, who shows up in you? Who shows up in you? Who and what are you available for? Who and what do you give yourself to? Consider this question. If you have your me time, but you don't have time to spend with God, then you're assaulting this prayer right here in John 17, verses 20 and 21. It was prayed for you. You're doing violence to it. If you put in your me time above your time to indwell God and be dwelled in by God, are you tethered to the union of God as you abide in his word and abide in Christ? Who shows up in you? Here's the second question. Who do you show up in? Can anybody see any traces of you in someone else? Are you dwelling in anyone else? Dads and single moms, I'm gonna ask you specifically do you show up in your kids? Or do you simply bring home a paycheck? Do you simply fill the cupboard and the checkbook? In a gas tank or are you indwelling your family are you indwelling the life of your wife when I can talk to your wife and hear your words shepherds Are single moms when I talk to your kids and I hear your shepherding that's the way it's supposed to be that's walking in obedience to this prayer families of cross point do you show up in each other can we see the Roberts in the Otts? Can we see the Otts in the Roddens? Can we see the Roddens in the Scots? Can we see the Scots in the Lindsays? The Lindsays in the Avants. The Avants in the Cardwells. Can we see each other in each other? If you can, then we're walking in obedience to this. If you can't, then we're just a club. Are you in others? We should see each other. In each other. Teachers who teach Bible study in this people, among this people. Can I walk up to your student and hear you? Can I hear your words? Can I hear your language? And if you've been with God, can I hear God in them? Because you're walking with them in the lesson that you're teaching them week by week. And I mean teachers teaching all ages. You're supposed to be. Because that's who we are as a perichoretic people. We should see each other in each other, and we should see Christ in all of us because we're reflecting what God is and because we're walking in what Jesus prayed right here in John chapter 17. Here's a second implication. Brief. It's going to be brief, but I want you to engage it because it's sweetness. John chapter 17, verse 20 says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. And this is a key word right here, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And this is the really important phrase right here, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Those two words, so that, just if you want a good habit for Bible study, circle so that and say, okay, why is that there? What does that mean? And this these two words so that right there they tell us the purpose of perichoresis Jesus is telling us why he wants perichoresis to show up in us this is the second important implication that God wants perichoresis in us not just for us but for the world the long arm of evangelism is a perichoretic people not some scheme not some cool crazy design It's just the people that are involved in each other's lives who are involved in God. It's nothing fancy. It's ancient. And it's beautiful when you see it. The so that of verse 21 is a purpose clause. It means that what Jesus is asking here of the Father has a purpose. It means the unity and oneness of the people of God with him and with each other serves the purpose to show the world that Jesus is legit. You want to show your workmates that Jesus is legit, yet you have no one another's and you're a free agent? Good luck. You got nothing to show them. But man, you want to show them a sweet garden. You show them a garden of fellowship. You show them a garden of people interinvolved, interengaged in each other's lives, like the world doesn't know. You show them a the people that are engaged vertically with a God that's worth engaging. And you show them a garden that can transform a community. It's not a scheme. It's being the people that he prayed that we would be. That's the instrument that reaches to the world and says, Jesus is legit. It says this Savior is real, and he's sent by a real Father, and he's gathering the real people who are in real worship. Man, that's sweetness. When the people of God are one, a perichoretic people in God who are in this dance are we in this blur of fellowship, and the world sees that and said, dude, man, that Jesus that they believe in, that dude, that Jesus is legit. He's for real. Because I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen so many, so, so many people dwelling in each other and being dwelled in by each other. Because usually I see people with walls. Usually I see people with the Cartesian ego raging. They're just me. But man, that's a unique people like nothing I've ever seen. So the mission of the church becomes oneness. And the byproduct is others come to know Christ. The community of faith becomes like a wonderful garden that transforms a community. Man. This has very specific application. Individually, it means that you realize that you are a product of others. If you're a believer, you must be a product of others. And others must be a product of you. It means there's no, there's just me. Individually, it means that there really isn't an individual. It's just like that blur of the people, of the, the triune God on the dance floor. Who did that? I'm not sure. It was God. Who cleaned up this sanctuary in a couple days? I'm not sure. Who did that? Well, the odds, uh, the rodents, um, I don't know, Hicks? I'm not sure. It was a blur. Man, we need one another's. There's no room for islands in the people of God. In marriages, men, it means you must first make time for God to dwell in you. If you're not going to give God time and not going to be available to Him, then you've got nothing to reproduce. You've got nothing to offer your wife and kids or single mothers. You've got to make time to be available to the living God, to be dwelled in and to dwell. And then you go dwell in your kids. And then you go dwell in your friends. men. you've got to let your wives and children in. Wives should not be able to say of you, he just won't let me in. Because there's just me. It doesn't work. You're not lone wolf, McQuaid. And for family and church... The Christian family and the church family must be urgent about engaging God and engaging each other. It's not a scheme. It's not a church growth plan. It's just obedience. It's just walking in this prayer that God the Son prayed, asked of God the Father 2,000 years ago, hours before he was nailed to a cross. It's walking in that prayer. That's all it is. Let me pray. Lord, I beg for this in this people. I beg that you will create in this people and continue to cultivate in this people a garden. A garden that celebrates no single man or no single family, but a garden that celebrates Jesus. A garden that is blown away by the reality that the previously unseeable and unknowable is now seeable and knowable in the person of Christ. A garden of people that are so enjoying the Holy Spirit and so walking in Him that we are indwelled and that we are dwelling in you. and Lord, that as a byproduct of that, that we give other people a place to dwell. And that we dwell in others. That others will do. Lord, I pray we will be convicted by the reality that the perfect has dwelt in the imperfect. So that we can come in low and dwell in each other and give others a place to dwell. Viewing that that's imperfect to imperfect. Lord, I pray that we will truly see this as a sweet scandal. And that we'll be caught up in it and amazed by it and fueled by it. And that it will transform the way fathers, father. The way husbands, husband. The way workers, work. The way wives, wife. Mothers, mother. Friends, friend. Pastors, pastor. Church people, church people. I pray that it will transform everything. We'll see your character of father and son, son and spirit. Spirit in both, Son and Father, that we'll see this beautiful dance. We pray by your grace and mercy that you'll catch us up in it and that you will create a dance in us. I thank you so much for this sweet revelation, Lord. I thank you so much for these common words that represent an amazing truth. We enjoy you this morning, Lord. Now we enjoy you in song. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.